Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day Eastside. I'm glad somebody excited. No, I'm excited. Um, you know how you just imagine your first everything? And I just didn't imagine my first time speaking at Eastside would happen the way it's happening this morning. But I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Mike Dean. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, can you give me some of this mic in, in a monitor? Back here. Is, is it too loud out there for you guys? Yeah. Will you bring the, the mic down in the house? Check one, two. Because my, my mouth is big. Um, sorry. Let me get situated real quick. Need the aqua. Need the, need the aqua. Okay. Um, so this morning... I'm going to talk to you about the gospel, and I know that's a, that's a term that we hear over and over again. It's overused, I know, in church. It, it still feels the same, at the same level. Um, hold on. Technology nowadays, we can, we can do some amazing things. Um, Check one, two. Check one, two. How's that? That better? All right. Okay. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Romans, the first chapter, in the 16th verse. Romans, chapter one, verse 16. Everybody have it? Okay, and it reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, as I said, the gospel is a word that is thrown around a lot in church. And so what we want to define real quick is, what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? What is the Bible actually talking about when it talks about the gospel? Well, I want to get to what it is by first going to what it is not, all right? So the gospel is not a list of rules. Do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there, and then thus and so, thus and so. That, that, that's not the gospel. Uh, it's also not a story of an angry God who's just waiting for a chance to strike you down as soon as you sin. That's the gospel some people have been uh, told, and that's what some people have been fed, but that is not the gospel. Uh, it also is not this idea that God has saved you, but now it's up to you to keep yourself saved. And that's a very popular uh, non-gospel, false gospel that is preached even in, even in a lot of churches uh, today. 
And lastly, the gospel is not the whole Bible. So the whole Bible is, is profitable and is good for, for many of things. And the, and the gospel is contained within scripture, within that whole Bible. But the whole Bible in and of itself is not the gospel. The gospel is actually a very particular story that is contained within the whole Bible. And so the gospel is this message, this particular specific message that Jesus Christ has come to establish his kingdom in the earth and to make us right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, that God has provided a solution through Jesus to every man and every woman's most significant problem. A problem that some of us know exists and a problem that others of us are completely oblivious of. So what's the problem? The problem is that God is righteous and just and humans are sinful. Ultimately, that's the problem. So let's start with God being righteous and just. In his nature, it is just what it is. Just as God is love and holy and sovereign and faithful, he is righteous and he is just. As a matter of fact, he is perfect righteousness and perfect justice. There is nothing that he does wrongly or improperly. There is nothing that he does that is out of balance or unsuccessfully. There is nothing that he even does partially. There is no oops in him. There is no my bad in him. There is no apology because everything that he does, he does right and he does justly. Now, how do we know that what he's done was done right or done justly? We know it because he did it. Literally, everything that he does, because he did it, his righteousness and justice isn't something that we get to analyze after we see him move in a certain way and then evaluate or determine whether or not it meets our shady, kind of shallow, kind of shifty uh, uh, measurement of what uh, justice or righteousness is. It is just simply who he is. So everything that he does is right, is just. He's not an American uh, partial justice. He's not a, hip, a hypocritical uh, give them death, but for the same crime, give me grace and mercy. He's not that hypocritical justice. He is perfectly just and perfectly right by his very nature. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. All right. Now, we all love justice, right? When someone has done us wrongly, we want to make sure that that, that wrong is made right, right? Right. Anyone ever loan somebody some money and they ain't paid you back yet, but you see them on social media spending and spending and spending? Don't it kind of feel like they spending your money? Like, I know you bought a new car and that's nice, but you ain't paid me my money back yet. So every time you make a payment, I feel like I'm paying for that car. Like, pay me back first and then go and do, you know, right? Because you owe me and we want what's owed to be paid in full quickly and there's that's something that's innately in us that believes that if something is old it should be paid back right we don't want them to linger in paying us back we don't want them to take their sweet time we want it done quickly and we all believe in justice and ultimately all the protesting and all of the unrest in our country is is about this innate desire in us to see justice performed. These things are wrong and they must be made right. That's what pretty much every protest is about. Something was done wrong and we want it to be made right. 
Well, that very inkling in us comes from our being made in God's image and being made in God's likeness. Even those who would not identify as a believer of Christ, because we're made in his image and likeness, there are just certain things that, that default into us. And the, sometimes it's the way that we love and sometimes it's the way that we give and sometimes it's the way we show compassion. But because we are all made in his image and in his likeness, there is just this piece of us that where all of us just demand justice. We demand that debts be paid in full. Now, earlier I said that one half of man and woman's most significant problem, and you're like, well, how's that a problem? God's just, God's righteous. That's not, that doesn't sound like a problem. Well, that's only half of what I said the problem was. The reason that's a problem from every man and every woman is that while God is just and righteous, humans are sinful. So what do we do with that? Because just like that's his nature, in our very nature, to our very core, we are selfish and proud and greedy and all about us and our kingdom and our desires. And we act as, we act as if anything truly is ours. Now, because God is just and righteous, he must deal with this sin of ours. I mean, think about it. If in our imperfect sense and idea of justice, we demand that things be made right, how much more so than the God who is justice require that all things be made right, that all debts be paid in full? So him being just and being justice and being righteousness means there's no way he could even turn a blind eye to it because that would be unjust. It just wouldn't be right. So the problem is that God is just and righteous and that humans are sinful. So what's the solution? Ask me, what's the solution? I'm glad you asked. The very God who is just and perfect knew that the only offering that would satisfy the penalty for sin is perfection itself. Now, based on that rubric, how many of us would satisfy God? Oh, y'all didn't hear the question. I want you to raise your hand if you could stand before God and satisfy his wrath because in and of yourself, you have been perfect. None of us ever could. So what's the penalty then? For one who can't satisfy their debt with a just God, whom by his very nature must ensure that all debts be paid in full, what's the penalty? Call it what you want. Death, hell, wrath, eternal separation. Whatever word you want to use for it, none of them are comforting. None of them are pretty. None of them sound good. Now, what about a perfect man, though? If a perfect man was sitting in this room, sitting in that chair, could he raise his hand? Of course. If you embody perfection, if you have perfectly obeyed the Father at every point of your life, you can in full assurance stand before a perfect God because you have no sin to be forgiven of. Therefore, there is no penalty for you to pay. There's no suffering for you. There's no pain for such a man, right? Except Jesus was a perfect man. And I think he experienced some pain and some suffering and some death and some wrath even. So why? Like we talk about Jesus' story and we talk about the crucifixion and I think sometimes it gets lost 
why it was necessary. Why was he spat on by the very people he made? How do you give somebody saliva and then they use the saliva to spit on you? Right? They slapped him open hand. They, like, like, they, like they punctured his skin. Like they mocked him and put the crown of thorn. Like he's God and could have avoided enduring all of that. So why did he go through it? It's because it was a part, a part of his plan to show his immeasurable love for you, to you. So he who was perfect, well, he knew that you had a debt that you would never be able to pay. So he who was perfect endured the suffering reserved for the most vicious criminal. He knew if he did it for the most vicious criminal, that probably wouldn't be you. But if you do it for the most vicious criminal, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cover you, right? Now, why did he do that? So the most vicious criminal, now that's you and me, we would receive the reward in life that is due to one that has never sinned. That's Jesus. It's an exchange. We've sinned and we get the reward of someone who's never sinned and the one who's never sinned endures the wrath in its full in the place of the one who sinned. Now, he did all of that without your help, without your effort, without your work. Now, that is good news. Is that good news? All right, all right. Yeah, you can clap for good news. We can clap for good news. I got ice in here, um, so I got to spit him out after I drink. Just excuse me. Now, any other version of the gospel I consider to be faulty and whack. Reject it, please. Especially this idea that it's up to you to keep yourself saved. Most of us can barely keep our shirts clean all day. If I eat a hot dog, it's over. Mustard, ketchup, listen, it's a wrap. And you telling me that my salvation is wrapped up in whether or not like my, I have a thought that goes this way or I do a deed that don't exactly line up. Or, like you're telling me that my salvation and my sustaining in Christ is dependent on me? How is that good news? Even if you're the least bit self-aware, that must be terrifying news. My actions, my thoughts, my emotions, as you know, wavy as some of us are, that ain't good news. And so when we buy into that lie, we begin to try to justify ourselves rather than trusting in Christ as our justification and our righteousness. We start to make categories of sin and we begin to call sin by other names, less egregious names. And even we even call things that God calls sin, we call them harmless and acceptable because all we know is for some reason we keep trying yet we keep falling short. But we want to please God. So we find clever ways to justify Ourselves, We find ways to try to declare ourselves righteous because we believe that's what we have to do. And if your righteousness depends on you, it is what you have to do. But that's not the gospel. You don't have to do that no more. 
The only thing that changes the ultimate fate of one who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus and the one who hasn't is that very reality. What do you mean, Mike Dean? I'll tell you. Come here, Sarah. Come here. Come on, Manuel. Don't, don't worry, I ain't gonna do nothing crazy. They're like, what do you want? Face them. Now you in the middle, so you gonna be Jesus on today. Y'all say hi to Jesus. All right. Um, now, Manuel is a good brother. He's just one of them, you ever met just a good person? They just don't do too much bad. They just was raised real wholesome like, right? Just, just real good. He gives to, to charity and, and then he visits the, uh, the, uh, the elderly. Yeah, it, all, yeah, he done adopted like six kids, right? Okay, this Manuel, real good. Now this Sarah, and she done lived all kind of hell, right? Like, I can't even go into the, the list. All right, now, if Sarah has placed her faith in Christ, what makes her right with God? So when Jesus, or when, when, when God is going to now, you stand before God and there must be a, a, an account made for your sin, if Sarah has accepted Jesus in her life, when I go to give judgment here, I have to realize that it's already been paid. Like he already endured the wrath for sin and drink every last drop. So I, so I can't pass it on to her. That would be unjust. Now, what about good old Manuel over here? He's done way less sin than Sarah. But the reality is, now Manuel has to try to, in front of a perfect holy God, show why he's deserving of grace and mercy. Show how he stacks up to perfection. And all the good that he's done and all the sin that he avoided and all the temptation that he did not indulge in, it still is not enough. It requires perfection to stand in the place of his sin. Y'all can have a seat. I just want to make it plain. I just want to make it plain. Now, I know that goes against our human wiring and our American values. If you don't earn it, you don't get it. We wonder, well, how will we keep track of who's saved and who's not? It ain't your business to keep track. But what about the works? I need this to be about works. I've been working for a long time at this. Some of us have. I had. Listen, I was one of the hardest working little religious little black boys you was going to ever find in Portland, Oregon. You ask about me. I got witnesses. I want to read a passage from Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. <sighs> it's so much in here. I, can't, I ain't got time. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners Christ died for us but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through God's wrath through him? From God's wrath through him, excuse me. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It couldn't be about performance or earning because he died for us while we were still sinners and his enemy. I can't marry you for your money when you was broke when I met you. Right? <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. He designed it that it wouldn't be about works because all we would do is going around boasting how wonderful our work is and how it's made us right with God. We ourselves made ourselves right with God. However, all he wants us to boast is, is his finished work on the cross where he accomplished everything through. So listen, God is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. The author started it, the perfecter, with us in it, and the finisher, he completes it. He's alpha and omega, beginning and the ending. He's the whole shebang. And he don't need you. He loves you because he chose to love you. He had mercy on you because he decided to have mercy on you. He has shown you grace because it pleases him to do so. Now, but doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to work for it? No. No. In James chapter 2, James writes that faith without works or deeds is dead. And yes, we are a Bible-believing church. We believe the whole Bible Faith without works is dead. But I, that's not saying what some of us think it's saying. James is saying that good works will follow genuine faith. Not that works save, but anyone whose heart has been transformed by the gospel will inevitably begin to produce good works. Now, I'll level with you. I'm not telling you not to do good works. What I'm telling you is not to do good works in an effort to earn favor, love, forgiveness, or acceptance from God. Your good work should be an act of worship in response to what he has done for you. It's not something that you do to get him to do these good things for you. You have nothing to offer him that can acquire these benefits for yourself. Even your righteousness is as a filthy rag to him. So you have nothing to bargain with. Everything already belongs to him. Romans 12 and 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for it is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Now, this is Romans chapter 12. And Paul opens up with, therefore, I wish I had time to dig into this passage because 
Yeah, but we ain't got time this morning. So listen, this is Romans chapter 12. So for 11 chapters, Paul is going ham. I'm talking ham sandwich. He's going ham on the Romans talking about the gospel and justification and sin and righteousness and freedom. And finally, chapter 12, he tells them how to respond. In view of God's mercy. What mercy? The mercy, the grace uh, that I've been talking about for 11 chapters. In view of all of that, this is how you respond. Commit your whole life to Christ. We're not talking about doing one or two or ten good things per day so you can say, I've done my works. The works we offer to God is a life totally surrendered in view of what he has done for us we give him all of us so our works are an act of worship to god they are in response to his gospel not an effort to earn the benefits of his gospel now i know that can seem like a minor difference but it's huge to god think about how many times throughout scripture we see god being about the posture of the heart the motive of a thing more than the action alone The same applies here. A life lived knowing that our salvation is secure in God is vastly different than one that is just trying to earn and earn and earn his security. God told us to take his yoke for it's easy and his burden because it's light. And some of the work, the tireless work that we've been engaged in has been pressure, has been stress. It's not been easy. And I'm not saying it doesn't get hard as a Christian to fight sin because we should fight sin. I'm saying that so many of us are trying to work for God to say, I'm proud of you. I love you. I accept you. You're mine. He never intended for you to have to work for that. It's a gift he gives you. So the call for us today is the same call Jesus gave in Mark 1 and 15. Repent and believe the good news. That is to change the direction of our minds, our thinking, our ways, our be- and believe the gospel. That's where we will find rest from all of our work and a peace that surpasses all of our understanding. Because when you begin to see Jesus as all that you need and the sole contributor to God's love for you, acceptance of you, and the full payment of your ransom note, you realize that he did it for you just because he loves you and that literally changes everything. And some of us are not going to be able to shake this idea that there's still something left we have to do. Imagine for a second, you're being sent on a shopping spree by God, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Um, Now, God says, okay, go get whatever you want, whatever your store is, Macy's, my wife likes Target, wherever you shop at, go get whatever you want, go to the register, it's already paid for. It's taken care of. I got it. You go, you pick out, you pick out, you pick out. 
okay, God knew I wanted this. He knew I wanted this dress. He knew I wanted that. He wanted. So you get to the, to the register and you put it all up there. Now the lady's going to say what to you? How much is she going to tell you now you have to pay? You say, hey, I'm here um, on a shopping spree from God. How much you got to pay? If, if God paid it all, if Jesus paid it all, how much do you have to pay? Now, there's still that part of us that's going to say, yeah, but when you go to the shopping aisle, they put these little things in the aisle that you might have forgot while you were shopping and the little candy or the little playing cards or, you know, the, the little eye. God, for, he didn't know I was going to want these, this gum. For real. God, he knew all that you would desire. He covered everything in the store and he forgot about the $1.50 pack of gum. The reality is there's nothing left to pay. When he said it is finished, he meant it. I don't know why we're tempted to think that there was some piece of our life that he hadn't considered. That there was some adultery or there was some murder or there was some lie or there was some divorce or there was something that we beat ourselves up and that we tell ourselves he could not forgive me for this or we find ourselves trying to do things to continuously earn his favor earn his grace and he's saying I covered that too I paid for that too there's nothing left for you to pay We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.